This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National here. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. China's strategic ambition, which is to become the dominant power in East Asia and the West Pacific, uh, and to become the dominant global strategic and economic power, uh, remains in place. But I think there is a, an analysis in Beijing that tactically the flurry of wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy and episodic thuggery which accompanied it uh, has not necessarily, uh, in the tradition of Dale Carnegie, been the best things for winning friends and influencing people. In fact, it's gone in the reverse direction. So I noticed the wolf warriors in recent times have been reined back in again. That's Kevin Rudd on China policy. Stay with us for my chat with the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. Well, three decades ago, with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism, it was widely believed that liberalism had triumphed. The world, according to my first guest, had reached the end of history the end point of humankind's ideological evolution and the triumph of liberal democracy. However, he warned there was always a risk of backsliding towards authoritarianism, which is precisely what's happened. Think of Putin, Erdogan in Turkey, perhaps the newly, and I put this word in quotation marks, re-elected Orban in Hungary. But liberalism is also under severe threat at home, within Western societies themselves. How so? Francis Fukuyama is author of Liberalism and Its Discontents. It's just out. As well as other influential books, including The End of History and The Last Man. Frank, welcome back to ABC's Radio National. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm glad to be back. Now, before we address your new book, let's start with Ukraine, because you've been very vocal about this. Now, you wrote in the UK Spectator recently, you stuck your neck out and you predicted that Russia may be heading for an outright defeat. Do you still think that's the case? Well, they have been defeated in the north. Uh, they've withdrawn from the area around Kiev. Uh, you know, they had expected to be able to topple the Zelensky government within two or three days. They obviously failed at that. Uh, but they've lost a, an unbelievable number of men and equipment. I mean, something like a quarter to a third of all the forces, this massive force they had assembled before the war. Uh, and they aren't just uh, redeploying, you know, to attack in the east. I mean, they are going to do that. But, you know, you shouldn't make a mistake. The, the Ukrainian army really defeated them there. Uh, they had an untenable position and now they are regrouping. Uh, there is going to be a battle uh, in the Donbass and in the south for the Ukrainians to regain those territories. But, uh, you know, up to this point, they've not, the Ukrainians have done so much better than anyone uh, uh, expected. And I think now people are finally uh, waking up to that realization. Yes, well, the embarrassing underperformance of Russia's military, as you say, um, that performance in Ukraine has been well reported. But how is an outright Russian defeat possible when... If we want a peace settlement, Ukraine would have to concede Russia's takeover of Crimea and those self-styled people's republics of Luhansk and Donetsk that you just mentioned in the Donbass East. But they might also have to renounce its ambitions enshrined in the Ukrainian constitution 
to join the EU and NATO. How is that an outright defeat for Russia? Well, it, it wouldn't be. And that's why I don't think the Ukrainians would ever settle for terms that are remotely like that. You know, I think the minimum that they would settle for is a, a Russian agreement to return to the positions they held on February 23rd before the start of the invasion. But if they were to give up any territory in the Donbass or in the south of Ukraine as a condition for a ceasefire and a settlement, then I, I just don't see how Zelensky or any other Ukrainian president could um, survive that, given the, you know, the terrible destruction that's been uh, visited on Ukraine, given the war crimes, the killing of civilians, all of the horrors that we've been witnessing over the last few days. Uh, and that's why I just don't think that you're going to have a ceasefire or any kind of settlement of the war anytime soon, because for Putin to actually withdraw to the pre-invasion lines is something he's not going to accept at, at the present moment, that they've lost that much of their military uh, for no gain whatsoever, uh, you know, is, is too humiliating for him. So I just don't expect that there's going to be a settlement, or, or rather I should say, you're not going to get a settlement until one side or the other does a lot better militarily. To the extent that you're right, Frank, and the Ukrainians don't make those concessions and legitimise Putin's illegal land grabs, what's in it for Moscow? Won't they just double down? Well, they'll try to. Uh, <clears throat> I think what a lot of people don't realise is that they don't have a lot of reserves left. Putin has con you know, already committed the better part of his entire military for the whole of uh, Russia. He's withdrawing forces from the Far East, from the Arctic, from Kaliningrad. He's calling on the Wagner Group, these mercenaries, on Syrians, on Central Asians, because he's desperate for manpower. I mean, they, they didn't start this war with remotely uh, the force, uh, the size of force that would be needed to subdue the largest country geographically uh, in the whole of Europe. And uh, so, you know, it's not as if um, uh, he can keep this up uh, indefinitely. And then you add to that this unprecedented level of sanctions that the rest of the world has imposed on Russia that is going to seriously undercut his ability to keep funding funding this war machine. Uh, so I think that, you know, he's in quite a lot of trouble. And I think that, um, you know, you could get a real deterioration of their the Russians' military position uh, in the East. Now, it's widely believed that with the Russian invasion, the US and the West have really, and this is a fact, I think, they haven't been so united in generations. But is there a danger in assuming that the world, the rest of the world, is on the West side over Ukraine? Now, this is Ed Luce from the FT, someone, Frank, you know and respect, as do I. Here he is on the program last week. I think there is a danger. Uh, I mean, a lot of um, focus was on the United Nations vote there's been two or three, but the big one in early March, mm. where 141 countries out of 193 voted to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and that, I think, gave a slightly false impression that the, that the majority of humanity uh, was represented by governments um, condemning um, Putin. When if you add those that abstained, the 35 countries that abstained to those who voted with Russia, you'll actually get about half of humanity, China, India, uh, some, some really big countries in there. Um, and uh, India, of course, is a democracy. So that sort of further 
confuses um, this sort of democracy versus autocracy framing. The sanctions, the, the really stringent and unprecedented Western sanctions that we've seen applied to Russia, with the exception of uh, oil and gas, uh, are not being emulated or followed um, by most of the rest of the world. Latin America is almost completely refusing to. Tiny parts of Africa have signed on, but base and the Middle East is basically completely absent, including Israel. So wow. this isn't a global consensus at all. That was Ed Luce last yep. week on Radio National saying that the West is mistaking its own unity for a global consensus. Francis Fukuyama. Oh, you know, he's, uh, he's right about this. I was in um, North Macedonia in the former Yugoslavia, uh, you know, after the war had started. And there's a, there's a fair amount of support for Putin among the, you know, the uh, Slavs uh, in that country, as in Serbia and other parts of the Balkans. And, you know, I have a good friend uh, from Tunisia who was saying that many Arabs uh, looking at this war say, well, the United States invaded Iraq. And so what's so different about uh, about this? So I think that Ed is right that uh, the chorus of support for Ukraine that we're hearing really does come primarily from Western uh, democracies. And we shouldn't, you know, assume that the whole world is lined up against Russia. Yeah, my guest is Sanford's Francis Fukuyama. He's author of 11 books, including the two-volume work of historically informed political theory, The Origins of Political Order in 2011, and Political Order and Political Decay in 2014. Frank, again, just before we get to your book, let's turn to the cause of the Ukraine crisis, because some intellectuals and pundits, they say that Russia, as a great power, declining great power, it's just defending its sphere of influence now. This is an uncomfortable question to ask any self-respecting liberal and proponent of national self-determination, which you are, but is the lesson of the Ukraine crisis this, that states which live next to great powers, they don't have the right to pursue any foreign policy they want? Well, you know, this is a position that uh, is taken by people like John Mearsheimer, who I think are living in a different century. Uh, because really, ever since the um, you know the Versailles Conference at the end of World War One, uh, the idea of national sovereignty as a normative uh, ideal has been accepted by you know by virtually uh, everybody. And this idea that somehow great powers have rights that small powers don't have, and that they can trade the small powers like pawns on a chessboard, is something that really belongs to an earlier uh, an earlier period. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the United States used to behave that way with the Monroe Doctrine in terms of its own neighborhood in Latin America, the Caribbean. Uh, but it's been a while since, um, you know, the U.S. has been willing to, let's say, overthrow the government of Venezuela just because it didn't uh, like what it saw there. So I think that, you know, times are really changing. And it is, I think, a testament to the much broader acceptance of the right of people to determine, you know, their own national identities and their no, their own independence. That, um, uh, you know, that that the support for Ukraine is what it is. Yes, but uh, you mentioned Mearsham. I mean, he would say that. Um, I mean, this is sixty years ago. But did Cuba have a right in the Cold War? I mean, at least from the Americans' point of view. Communist Cuba had no right to form a military alliance with the Soviet Union 
and invite the Soviets to put missiles, naval, ground forces in Cuba, right? Uh, yeah, that's um, that's true. I would say a couple of things, though. The Cuban Act was actually much more of an actual threat to the United States because this was a period before intercontinental missiles and intercontinental bombers. And so the um, Soviet Union was actually gaining a real capacity it didn't have. The thing about Ukraine that I find really irritating about the people that want to blame this current war on uh, the U.S. And, and NATO expansion is that, you know, anybody looking at that situation over the last 20 years knows that Ukraine was not remotely a threat to Russia. You know, it didn't have the power. It didn't have the interest. Uh, nobody was actually actively trying to get Ukraine into NATO, even after the uh, 2008 um, uh, Bucharest Declaration. You know, nobody lifted a finger to do that because they realized it actually didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so I do think that those situations are rather different. And in fact, you know, the United States has not tried to intervene in Cuba to topple that government. Yeah, but if you look at Putin's uh, February 24th speech, this is explaining why he went to war. He says it's all about NATO expansion, and he has no, zero no, interest. No, no, in no, Tom, that's not that's not right. He he made that argument among others, but if you read the the long article that he published last summer and that speech that he gave on the eve of the invasion, he's talking about something completely other than NATO expansion. You know, he's saying that. The falling apart of the Soviet Union in 1991 was a historical tragedy. It artificially, you know, that Ukraine basically is not an independent country. It artificially split uh, the Russian people. And it's that historical wrong that he is trying to correct. It's not a threat to Russia itself, or rather it's a threat to this conception that somehow Russia necessarily has to include all of these Slavic people, including Belarus, including uh, Ukraine, and that these other countries don't have a right to determine their own uh, future. That, for him, is the real essence of it. Furthermore, if you look at the Russian demands made in all the different negotiations prior to the invasion, they're also talking about you know NATO not being able to support militarily the new members, including countries like you know, Poland, the Baltic states, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and so forth, that joined NATO back in the in the 1990s. And so his goal is really not to defend Russia against any kind of near-term threat from Ukraine. He really wants to reverse the whole, you know, Europe whole and free settlement that proceeded out of the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the collapse of the former Soviet Union. That was the real issue for him. But your critics, your realist critics would say that Ukraine is going to end up destroying itself if it continues to act as if it has the right to join forces with the West and that what the West is in effect doing, I mean, this is Mearsheimer's point, I think, he says that Washington and Brussels has led the Ukrainians down the primrose path by encouraging them to pursue self-determination when the West has no interest whatsoever in backing up the Ukrainians. Won't that just aggravate Russia? Francis Fukuyama. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just think you have to look at the results on the battlefield, you know. Uh, Putin has lost a quarter to a third of his whole army in this uh, this ridiculous effort to take uh, Kiev. And, 
you know, a lot of that realist argument was really based on this premise that Ukraine simply could not resist uh, Russian power. But I just think that the Ukrainians have demonstrated, and, and this really does get to the heart of the ideological issue at stake and why this is not just a realist conflict between two nations that, that operate alike, but just have different power, but it really is ideological. The Ukrainians are tenaciously fighting to defend both their sovereignty and the fact that they want a, a, a Ukraine that is, you know, not Putin's kleptocratic dictatorship. Uh, and the Russians are fighting for God knows what reason, because this guy that happens to be president, who seems to be completely isolated and living in his own fantasy world, did not understand Ukraine, didn't take advice from anybody, and then launched this, you know, this half-assed invasion, uh, thinking that he'd be welcomed as a as a liberator. And, it, you know, it kind of speaks to the real strengths and weaknesses of democracy versus authoritarianism. Uh, you know, democracies do generate in, in a time of crisis real popular support because it is government by the people, you know, and for the people. Uh, autocracies can get themselves into a huge amount of trouble because, you know, a single leader can lead them into these really awful uh, uh, dead ends. And I think that that's, you know, actually a good lesson for everybody else about why limits on executive authority uh, that, you know, are the hallmark of a, of a liberal uh, political order are actually pretty important so that leaders don't make um, dumb mistakes like this. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guest is Professor Francis Fukuyama from Stanford University in California. Frank, let's turn to your new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Now, liberalism, as you well know, it's one of those words that mean, you know, different things to different people and political groupings. Uh, if a partisan Liberal Party person were in the United States and proudly boasted he was a liberal, um, Americans would probably think he was a lefty. <laughs> so it gets complicated, lost in translation. So, Frank, how do you define liberalism? Well, I'm using liberalism in a pretty expansive uh, way. So liberals believe in a kind of universal uh, human equality that gives, you know, uh, people as individuals rights, and that those rights have to be protected by uh, by law, by constitutional provisions that prevent the government from infringing upon those rights. It's also connected to a number of other approaches, a cognitive approach known as modern natural science, where people believe that there's an external world that can be understood and manipulated ultimately by uh, by human beings. Uh, and they basically believe in, in a, you know, the need for uh, human freedom as a as the basis of human dignity. And in that sense, in that very broad sense, it's not, you know, connected as in Europe. Like in in continental Europe, liberal parties are generally like the Free Democrats in Germany. They're center right parties that are kind of more pro business than the Social Democrats. That's not the way I use it. So I think the the Swedish Social Democrats are actually a liberal party uh, in my sense of the term, even though they're supportive of a much bigger state, much more redistribution than, let's say, uh, you know, the Tories in, in, in Britain. I mean, both of those, I would say, are part of the liberal camp. 
where you get out of the liberal camp is where you start making invidious comparisons, you know, like Viktor Orban saying that he's building an illiberal democracy in which Hungarian national identity is based on Hungarian ethnicity. And that's the point at which you start contradicting, you know, some of these foundational liberal principles. And you say that liberalism is under attack from both left and right extremes, which raises the question, which represents, what is it, the left or the right that represents the more serious intellectual challenge? Let's think about the political challenge in the first place. In my country, the United States, there is without question a bigger challenge right now from the right. Uh, Trump has led the Republican Party into a kind of cult of personality in which uh, Republican state legislators are now trying to change the laws under which uh, votes will be counted in the 2024 election. They're trying to prevent Democratic voters from actually being able to vote. Uh, and you could have a very seriously contested uh, election. Uh, you know, it's what Trump wanted to do. He wanted to overturn a free and fair election in November 2020. He was prevented from doing that, but he wants to come back and make a second uh, take a second swing at that. And if that happens, that's going to be one of the biggest threats to the American constitutional order really since the Civil War in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the threat, though, on the left is a real one because there is a version of progressive identity politics that is quite illiberal. It's not tolerant of opposition. Uh, it is not supportive of free speech when free speech contradicts uh, some of the, you know, deeply held views on things like race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, and so forth. It is willing to override, um, you know, process, uh, due process uh, uh, when it believes that social justice issues are at stake. Uh, and, you know, that threat is not an immediate political one. It's more of a cultural one wherein certain elite institutions like, you know, the arts or Hollywood or publishing or universities, uh, you know, people self-censor because they don't want to get crosswise with, uh, with that form of identity politics. So I think, you know, the immediate threat is from the right, but, you know, there's a serious one from the left as well. Okay, so we've got the left's divisiveness of identity politics on the woke left. That threatens free speech. I get that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the anti-democratic tendencies of Trumpism. I suppose the question here is, to what extent has technology exacerbated this crisis? That is, added more fuel to the fire of both of these extremes. Well, technology has really made the thing much worse, right? When the internet was uh, first introduced... Um, uh, in the 1990s, we all thought that it would be great for democracy because it was going to take away all the gatekeepers that uh, prevented information from getting out. Uh, and it's done that. That's exactly what's happened. But it turns out that a lot of those gatekeepers were actually pretty useful because, you know, they did things like check facts. Uh, they verified uh, information. Uh, they tried to guarantee a certain quality of information. And these days, you know, you can say anything you want uh, on the Internet. So if you, you know, do a Google search and say, you know, are uh, COVID vaccines safe, you'll get 10,000 hits of people saying, no, no, they're very dangerous. You know, it's all a big conspiracy. 
by uh, elites using, you know, the medical establishment to manipulate you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that leads to a kind of relativism. You know, so we, in a liberal society, we are relativistic about, you know, ultimate questions. We we don't say there's a single religious view or a single cultural point of reference that we all accept. But up till now, we've actually been able to agree on basic you know, empirical facts like who won the last election or is this vaccine uh, safe? And at this point, we can't agree on those, you know, those simple empirical questions. And it means that, you know, the two sides of our polarization in the United States don't just disagree on values. They, they're living in completely different information universes. And that makes, obviously, deliberation, uh, democratic deliberation, very difficult. And despite the uh, the threats of these extremes on both left and right, and despite the menace of authoritarianism, am I right in saying, Frank, your faith in liberal democracy remains firm? Well, the normative faith, uh, I think, is is completely firm. The reason I wrote my current book is that I wanted to make a case for liberalism, a positive case for liberalism, because lots of people have been writing about the problems of liberalism. But I wanted to remind people why it's important. And you know, I think there are basically three reasons. I mean, there's a pragmatic reason that it's a means of governing uh, in a diverse society and allowing people with diverse viewpoints to live with one another. There's a moral reason, which has to do with human dignity and liberalism's protection of human autonomy. And there's an economic reason, because liberal societies protect property rights and the right to transact, and hence have been associated with a high degree of entrepreneurship, growth, uh, prosperity. And I think people need to be reminded of those reasons, because, you know, there are problems with liberal societies. And you know, in the last few years, it's the problems that have been getting uh, all of the attention. So the spirit of 1989 has not gone away. On that optimistic note, Frank, great to have you again on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be back on. That's Francis Fukuyama, author of Liberalism and Its Discontents, now available in Australia. ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including our recent exchanges with British military historian Max Hastings and the Australian colonial historian Margaret Cameron Ash, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free. Up next, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on his new China policy thesis. Well, 
warrior diplomacy. Remember that. That's the Chinese Communist Party's attempt to use its growing economic power to coerce or harm weaker states that pursue policies not to Beijing's liking. And Australia, of course, was subjected to that hardline strategy during the COVID crisis. Remember, in response to Canberra's call for an international inquiry into the Wuhan outbreak, China hit us with tariffs across a wide range of sectors. Well, my next guest says China is retreating from those aggressive tactics. At the same time, though, China, he says, still seeks to dominate the region and, in his words, quote, redesign the world order in a manner according to the interests, values and power of China. Dangerous times indeed. The 2020s indeed looms as a decisive decade in the overall dynamics of the changing balance of power between China and the US. So how do we manage the increasingly intense strategic competition with China? Kevin Rudd was Australia's Prime Minister twice, from late 2007 to mid-2010, and briefly again in 2013. A student of China since he was 18 years old, as an ANU undergraduate, Kevin Rudd has lived for a number of years in the US, where he's the Chief Executive of the Asia Society in New York. His new book is called The Avoidable War the dangers of a catastrophic conflict between the US and Xi Jinping's China. That's published by Hachette Australia. Kevin Rudd, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Tom. Now, you say China is retreating from wolf warrior diplomacy, yet it still advances its strategy for dominance. Tell us more. Well, it's the difference classically in the Chinese understanding uh, between tactics and strategy. Uh, China's strategic ambition, which is to become the dominant power, in East Asia and the West Pacific, uh, and to become the dominant global strategic and economic power, uh, remains in place. But I think there is a, an analysis in Beijing that tactically, the flurry of wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy and episodic thuggery which accompanied it uh, has not necessarily, uh, in the tradition of Dale Carnegie, been the best things for winning friends and influencing people. In fact, it's gone in the reverse direction. So I noticed the wolf warriors in recent times have been reined back in again. doesn't mean that operationally Chinese diplomacy or foreign policy or national security policy is going to be on the defensive, but simply that the public tonality of it for the period ahead may well change and soften. Does all this mean then that Australia and the West have been incredibly naive in engaging with China during the last three decades? Now, before you answer that, Let's hear from your old sparring partner on this program, Kevin. This is Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago on the folly of Western engagement in the post-Cold War era. What engagement says is that if we can integrate China into the international economy that the United States helped create during the Cold War, we can integrate it into that economy, integrate it into institutions like the World Trade Organization, it will become a very powerful country, but it will become a peaceful country and a so-called responsible stakeholder in the international system. Now, for a realist like me, this was a crazy policy. This was remarkably foolish because what you were going to do in my story was you were going to create a very powerful China that was then going to try to dominate Asia, push the United States out of Asia, and develop power projection capability that can be used outside of Asia to change 
America's dominant position in the world. Engagement was a major mistake. That's Professor John Mearsheimer on Between the Lines last December. Kevin Rudd, uh, you've been a strong advocate of China engagement, but in more recent times you've described yourself as either a brutal realist or um, a hopeful realist. Do you now recognise that we in the West, as John Mearsheimer just put it, we've just been feeding the beast? Well, Mearsheimer's analysis is firstly ahistoric uh, and B, uh, deceptive. Let me go to those points in sequence. Ahistoric in the sense that engagement has been uh, pursued by the United States with multiple countries in the past, not least of which has been post-war Japan and post-war Germany. They were invited to join the table uh, of the liberal international order. Uh, They became powerful, but they chose to remain within the order. Now, a similar approach was adopted, of course, a generation after that or two generations after that in terms of post-78 US engagement with China and particularly post-2002 engagement with China when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. And the results, uh, of course, as we see with China's current assertiveness and and determination to establish an alternative to the real international order, uh, has not been successful. But the second point is this. This is where he's been misrepresenting what the United States, I believe, was doing over that period of time. The argument often used by those on the far right, of which I associate, with which I associate Mearsheimer, is this, is that the United States, under successive American presidents, uh, from uh, Bush through, uh, back through Clinton, or from Bush 1 through Clinton through Bush 2 and then Obama, etc., um, had been engaged in uh, engagement unqualified until uh, we had the Moses on Mount Sinai moment of of uh, Trump and uh, National Security Advisor uh, for the Trump administration, H.R. McMaster, producing the new national security strategy of late 2017. It's in an inconvenient truth that engagement was never unqualified. It was engagement plus hedge. And remember, hedge equaled continuing to have the military capability to act in the eventuality that engagement failed. That's within that framework. That's why, for example, the Obama administration uh, engaged in the pivot to Asia militarily and embraced the Trans-Pacific Partnership in order to hedge against any emergence of Chinese assertiveness and or aggression. So that's been conveniently left off the Mearsheimian recollection of history. I'd have to say, having known Mearsheimer well for 20 years, he's not on the far right. He's a pretty mainstream intellectual. He's a, just a hardcore realist when it comes to foreign policy. But leaving that aside, how you many, how many that China wishes have to you be... seen on the far left recently, Tom? Yeah, well, I think he's <laughs> not, in the middle, but many. nevertheless, he... Yeah, well, Hedley Bull was a, was, a, was a realist. As you know, Hedley Bull from ANU, one of the great Australian realists, and he was a man of the left. But leaving that aside, you acknowledge that China wishes to become the dominant economy in the political system and the strategic power, not just in the Asia-Pacific, but globally over time. That's what you say in your book. But this process, let me submit this to you, that's not just taken a few years. That's been happening over decades, hasn't it? So I'll ask again, why are you and so many former Western leaders so late in recognising the China threat? I think the other thing I would add to uh, what you just said before is that Hedley Ball, Uh, was also the father of the English School of International Relations, 
which was not the American school of realism. The English school of international relations had two traditions within it. One, a realist analysis of the balance of power, but secondly, the construction of a system of international institutions which could militate against the possibility of rolling crisis, conflict and war. So therefore, I um, respond to your last point because I think it needs to be corrected. In terms of your uh, general assertion that there's been a level of strategic naivety about uh, engage and hedge, which is the accurate description of US strategy over a long period of time and that of its allies, you may recall that um, back in 2009, uh, as Prime Minister of Australia, I presided over a defence white paper which was produced which said, we need to be vigilant about the emergence of a more assertive China militarily in our region. It formed the strategic basis for the Australian Defence White Paper of 2009, which commissioned two things, a doubling of the submarine fleet and an increase in the surface fleet by a third. Our Chinese friends went nuts when we produced that because they thought it was uh, far too overt and direct in describing what China operationally had already begun to do during the second term of the Hu Jintao administration. So that's my response in terms of, quote, being late to the party. What about President George W. Bush in, at the time in 2007, and you make this clear in your book, Kevin, uh, he was very reluctant about the idea of what's called the Quad now, Australia, the United States, Japan, India, for fear of antagonising China. That doesn't sound like hedging. Well, it's not just um, the uh, George Bush administration. If you look carefully at the statements by then Australian Defence Minister Brendan Nelson in Beijing, uh, they were all, as it were, lining up against Quad Mark I, which had been the product of the thinking of Shinzo Abe when he first became Prime Minister of Japan briefly in 2007. And so for those sort of reasons, um, I think there were divided opinions at the time but the overall problem with the American condition on this question was this. The United States was overwhelmed with its uh, framework for responding to, uh, quote, the war on terror, unquote, uh, both in terms of what happened on um, September 11 and then uh, the folly of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And as a result, this basically preoccupied the United States for the better part of 15 to 20 years. It's during that period of time uh, when you saw belatedly responses in the United States begun with Obama's pivot and with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then I think sustained at a different level through uh, the uh, national security strategy of H.R. McMaster, and now embraced, I think, on a bipartisan basis in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, you say that, uh, quote, phenomenal progress from 2016 to 2020 courtesy of Donald Trump, the US as the stabilizing fulcrum in the international order started to wobble. China didn't believe their luck. And you go on to say that the diminishing of US standing was unprecedented. That's what you say in your new book. But let me put this to you. One can be a critic and oppose Trump and still recognize that A, China exploited the geopolitical opportunities as a result of the US being distracted by those endless post 9-11 wars, which Trump opposed. But moreover, Kevin, it was not until Trump arrived and McMaster arrived on the scene when the Americans finally stood up to China and challenged its rise both economically and strategically. Kevin Rudd. Well, as I acknowledge, uh, 
clearly in the book, and I regard H.R. McMaster as a friend and colleague because of his clear thinking reflected in the National Security Strategy of 2017. But I think if you were to um, have that conversation with H.R. McMaster, who himself, of course, um, as a general, had served in uniform during the period of the Trump of the Obama administration, that measures were taken during the period of the pivot and then subsequently with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because this is not just a military response, it's also a geoeconomic response. And the whole rationale of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was to provide market opportunities other than China to the free economies of the Asian hemisphere, then repudiated by Hillary Clinton going into the 2016 election, and then most critically, uh, unilaterally abolished in the first measure of the Trump administration. The bottom line here is in terms of cold, hard balancing, which is, if you like, one element of the Mearsheimian response, and certainly my own view of strategic reality, is that we've not had a uh, completely effective response from either the Obama administration or the Trump administration. We may be getting to this point of, frankly, a greater equilibrium in the way the US approaches China now, but it's been a long journey to get there. And the Middle Eastern uh, war on terror, distraction, starting back in 2001, frankly, is a, is a signal cause. And one final point, what the Chinese have done simultaneously, and I outline this in the book, I think, Tom, is in their analysis of the United States and the collective West have looked at not just the Middle East preoccupation militarily and strategically, They've looked at the global financial crisis. They've looked at uh, the uh, dissolution of the European Union through uh, Britain's uh, decision to, uh, to exit it and make it a weaker strategic entity as a result, in addition to uh, the mismanagement uh, of uh, the COVID crisis within the United States and elsewhere, as all symbolic of collective US and Western decline. An overwrought analysis, in my view, but nonetheless has fueled the Chinese strategic analysis of Western weakness. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National, and my guest is the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, Kevin Rudd. These days, he's Chief Executive of the Asia Society in New York. His new book is called The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China. Now, on the book jacket, Henry Kissinger... He's 99 years old. He's the former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to Presidents Nixon and Ford. This is what Kissinger calls our guest, quote, one of today's most thoughtful analysts of China's development. Now, Kevin Rudd, in your book, you set out 10 circles of interest to help understand Xi Jinping's worldview, staying in power, a China securing national unity, prosperity, modernizing the military, expanding their power, we could go on. But what about China's real limitations and weaknesses? I think of demographic challenges, environmental, ethnic, internal economic challenges. To what extent does all that represent a real barrier to China? Oh, those are significant impediments, uh, Tom, and any rational analysis will lay that um, on the table as well. However, often in the past, when I have sought to present a realist view of the emerging China challenge to various um, American leaders um, over the years, they've often quickly and immediately pointed to the fragilities of the Chinese economy or the fragilities of the Chinese um, uh, political system, etc. Uh, they exist, but frankly, an analysis of the other side's fragilities does not constitute a strategy of one's own. 
And that's been my critique of this country, the United States, for now live, work and have my being for some time. The vulnerabilities you pointed to are real. The date was demographic destiny, uh, a uh, declining workforce in terms of size, an ageing workforce, an ageing population, population peak either around about now or certainly by the mid-2020s, uh, and therefore a mounting health and social security bill. Sound familiar? Uh, with the, uh, the challenges of many Western countries, and China is still a developing country. Um, and people aren't getting married as much in China. The natural birth rate is really plummeting, almost in South Korean and Japanese-type trajectories. How do you account for that? I think you've got uh, the emergence of what we would describe as the social forces of modernity. Many Chinese women are frankly fed up with the way in which um, they've been treated by many Chinese men and frankly um, are voting accordingly. And so as a result, um, this is no longer just this, uh, this sort of society which will click its heels and respond socially to what the system wants. I think on top of that, the uh, economic fragilities are also real. Um, and the movement to the left in terms of China's economic policy settings, favouring once again state and enterprises and creating all sorts of impediments for the Chinese private sector, have created, I think, an emerging um, challenge in terms of private sector business confidence in China, which is in turn slowing the growth rate together with other factors. And finally, the rolling fragility of politics. Uh, whatever we may critique our own political system for, and there are many things, um, we also always have these things called automatic stabilizers, and they're called elections, and then you can toss the bums out whenever you want. Um, and guess what? The system remains still fundamentally stable, leaving aside, by the way, the events of January the 6th in the United States, but I won't go there. But the Chinese don't have that, and so when you've got, um, let's call it, what's often described as resilient authoritarian systems, the danger zone for them is always at the point of internal power transition, where, frankly, things can lurch in one direction or another, and sometimes violently. And talking about danger zones, the widespread view is that Beijing has hurt its credibility by aligning itself with Vladimir Putin. Now, the Chinese leadership is internally divided about this matter. I think you've made that point. Do you think Xi Jinping will abandon Putin? I don't believe so, because the Chinese um, are very much Mearsheimian realists. <clears throat> Whenever Mearsheimer goes to Beijing, they greet him and throw petals on the ground um, because they love what he has to say. That's true, as they do in Moscow, because uh, Mearsheimer simply points to the balance of power and unlike Headley Bull, whom you referred to before, does not offer the way through in terms of a negotiation based on the balance of power. Now, you've called Xi Jinping a calculated risk taker. Doesn't China run the risk of secondary financial sanctions being imposed by Washington and its allies against China if Beijing violates those sanctions? Isn't that a real problem for Xi Jinping? The evidence so far here in the United States is that Xi Jinping and the Chinese system have steered clear of either financial actions or military actions which would cause them to have secondary sanctions lodged against them. And the reason for that is not um, uh, anything other than a deeply realist assessment that as of now, 2022, Chinese economy and financial system remains vulnerable to the US dollar-denominated global financial system, including its essential financial plumbing in SWIFT, the international settlement system. 
So for those sorts of reasons, the balancing act which Xi Jinping in my analysis will seek to pursue is something like this, Tom. Um, steering clear of technically breaching sanctions, providing diplomatic and, um, and political and, shall I say, trade support uh, for Putin's Russia because at present uh, there are no sanctions against trade in oil and gas and commodities because the Europeans need those things. Um, and at the same time, not abandoning uh, Putin at all for the simple reason is from a realist perspective, uh, Xi Jinping looks at Russia and says, China needs strategically a benign Russian border with China. It releases China's strategic entities to focus on their principal regional global challenge, and that's the United States. And at the same time, Russia can create strategic diversion for the United States and other theatres like Syria like Libya, and now, of course, in Ukraine. Okay, finally, and this is really the issue of your book, you refer to these two giants, the Americans and the Chinese, finding a way to coexist without betraying their core interests. So the question here is, how do we manage this strategic competition in a way that does not result in a serious crisis? Kevin Rudd. Remember the near-death experience of 1962, uh, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis? An interesting thing happened between the Soviets and the United States after that. Informally, and then more formally, they developed certain de minima rules of the road, guardrails, to conduct their strategic competition in a manner which didn't run the rolling risk of blowing each other's brains out, like nearly happened in 62. My argument is, given where we are now with China uh, and the United States, there are two paths. One is what I call unmanaged strategic competition, with the rolling risk of crisis, conflict and war, because there are no rules of the road and it's all push and prod uh, and hope that it all turns out okay in the end. Or instead, what I advocate in the conclusion of the book is a joint strategic framework, de minima, uh, called managed strategic competition, basic rules of the road around strategic red lines, preventing lethal conflict in other areas of competition, uh, in foreign policy, in the economy, in trade, investment technology, and frankly, in ideology as well, the great battle for ideas. And thirdly, still carving out strategic space where both sides agree it's in their national interest to do so, in critical areas such as climate action, as well as managing the next pandemic, because we buggered up the last one so phenomenally well. And then thirdly, uh, in continued global financial stability between the world's two largest economies. In a nutshell, that's the concept of managed strategic competition. And following on from that, and you have a chapter in your book uh, about the, the, the sustainability challenge for China, how then in, in an intensifying security competition uh, can the United States encourage Beijing to slash emissions, especially given China's heavy reliance on fossil fuels? The Chinese renewable energy transformation is massive, but it's still not fast enough. If you were to look at the number of um, solar, wind and other renewable energy plants being built across the country, there is a big transformation underway. But China relies significantly on foreign oil, gas and coal, Kevin. That's true. And so do most other economies at this stage. But the tra it would be empirically wrong to point out that there's no transition underway. It is. It's just not fast enough. Like the one in America at present is not fast enough, and these are the two world's largest emitters. My argument is simply it's not about uh, whether you feel warm and fuzzy going off to a conference in Glasgow. It's got nothing to do with it. It's in reaching a national conclusion that global warming, 
but more importantly in the immediate term, extreme weather events coming out of climate change are representing such a risk to your country's economy and social stability that you bring forward your programs for energy transformation. In China this year, they've had a really bad grain harvest. It's been brought about by extreme weather events of the type which the Chinese have not seen for a very long time. So for those sort of reasons, it is an appeal to the national interest of both countries, quite apart from their sense of planetary or global responsibility. But I think you can carve out some space. Remember even the Soviets and the, China, and the, and the Americans after the Cuban Missile Crisis, collaborated on the global elimination of smallpox. Fancy that. Um, if they could do that, then surely we could have enough imagination, creativity to do the same, even within a small uh, realist paradigm of strategic competition. No wonder you call yourself a hopeful realist, Kevin. You and I have been <laughs> doing this uh, for more than 20 years since we met in the late 1990s. Always great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. All the best to your listeners. That was former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Kevin Rudd, author of Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China, that's published in Australia by Hachette and available now. Well, that's it for another show. Now, next week on the program, Jean Lee on the latest on North Korea and Sheila Fitzpatrick on the history of the Soviet Union plus more. Hope you can tune in then. I'm Tom Switzer and thanks for listening. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.